The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures, leads me beside quiet waters, he refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod, your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, uh, grateful as always to be able to gather as a family, as your church, that we could receive the gospel, we hear the scriptures read, that we could simply come and remember what is very familiar and just really simple news. Yet every time we leave this place, there are so many voices that are trying to tell us otherwise or tell us other news. It's easy to forget. It's easy to lose track. So we pray that as we gather that you would continue to just lodge this into our memories, make it a part of who we are so that we can face each and every day knowing who you are, what you've done, who we are, and what it means for the way that we live our lives. So open our minds, our eyes, our ears, and our hearts that we could receive the word that you have for us today. Pray as always that you would use our hands, our feet, our mouths, our entire being as we go out into the world. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. So for the past couple weeks, we've been talking about who we are, our identity. We're calling the series searching for what is true about me and about you. And today, to continue that conversation, I'm gonna start by doing something that we spend years in seminary being taught not to do. Uh, there's really only uh, two ways to study the Bible. Uh, one of them is right, and the other one is honestly wrong. <laughs> uh, the right way to study the Bible is to take sections of Scripture and to do the work to understand them in context, there's no exact rule on how many verses, but enough that you have a complete thought or you have a whole story, and then you consider what came before, what comes after, so that you have it in the right context. That's the right way. The wrong way is what they call proof texting. It, you take one or two verses out of context and you use them to make a point that the author of the scriptures, a point the scriptures themselves might not have intended to make. And that's possibly what I'm about to do. <laughs> but, but don't worry, there's a reason I'm doing it. We are gonna study the Bible correctly in just a minute, so if you could just bear with me. Fair? All right, you can call my professors after and tell them if I want to. Uh, Acts 13. In Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas, two apostles of Jesus Christ, they're filled with the Holy Spirit, and they're traveling from place to place. They're on these missionary journeys, and they're sharing the gospel first with the Jewish synagogues, they're telling the people of Israel the good news that the Messiah has come and that his name is Jesus. And then they make their way out to the Gentiles. Gentile in scripture simply means anyone who's not a Jew. Now, as they're on these missionary journeys, they face opposition. And oftentimes from Jews who just can't accept that this Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. So in a Bible study a couple weeks ago, we were talking about this, we were reading Acts chapter 13, and we came across this one verse that like, I don't know, I don't know that I ever read this verse before. It sounded like the ultimate, I didn't even know how to say it, like uh, the younger generation will just say mic drop, do you know what that is? It's like when you say something snarky or rude and you drop the mic and walk away, like, I, don't, I don't know, just like in your, just, I don't, I don't even know how to say it. 
I just was shocked when I heard this verse. Let me share it with you. Here it is in a little bit of context in Acts 13, verse 44. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. And then verse 46, then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. We had to speak the word of God to you first, but since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. <laughs> okay, so like during that Bible study, I just basked in how harsh that was. <laughs> like I was laughing maybe a little uncomfortably. I, I just don't know that I'd ever read that verse before, but then afterwards I didn't think that much about it. And then the other day it dawned on me that that verse actually it might explain a little more about our situation than we realize. Um, not that we are necessarily out to attack the gospel or the crucified and resurrected Jesus. Some do for sure. But it might be that some simply reject the gospel or don't fully live into it because we've deemed ourselves unworthy of it. That we think we're not worthy. Like when I think about the cross, when I consider the price that was paid so that my relationship with God can be redeemed and restored forever, so that I can be made new, when I think about that, I can see how someone might be hesitant to fully receive the gospel or how they might even reject it altogether because they don't think they're worthy. On Wednesday nights, I have a Wednesday night Bible study that we call the late night BS. And this week, um, somebody in that Bible study said, I think what they meant to say was that they were undeserving, that they haven't earned God's grace, that they haven't earned the love of Christ, but what came out was they said they felt unworthy. Now, just really quick, everybody in all my classes is like, okay, we're not talking anymore. <laughs> um, I cleared it by the person. He was okay with me sharing that. Anyway, um, but what came out was not undeserving. What came out was unworthy. And if you know anything about me, you know that I think words really matter. And when words slip out, sometimes we might be saying more than we realize. So like rhetorically speaking, nobody answer out loud, please. But if I were to ask you, do you feel like you don't deserve the love of God? Or do you feel like you're unworthy of it? I'm telling you there's a difference. Which one of those would you choose? If we feel like we don't deserve a gift, but we can receive it, that leads to joy. If we feel like we're unworthy, we might just run away. Y'all, we do not deserve the gospel. We have not and we cannot earn our way back into relationship with God, that is absolutely true. But please hear this. The Bible never says that we are unworthy of his love. The Bible never says that we are inherently unworthy of God's love. Now, I wanted to make sure that that statement was true. <laughs> so I looked up every time the word unworthy or not worthy is used in scripture. And every time except for once, it's a human declaring themselves unworthy of something. Now, there is one time that Jesus uses it. And I'm gonna read it to you and I'm gonna tell you this is still harsh but we have to understand what he means. This is Matthew 10, verse 37. He says, 
And, you know, prepare yourself. I'm, this is still harsh. I just want to be transparent. He does say this. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Now, every English translation uses that same word, unworthy, and this isn't a translation error. They're translating the Greek word oxios. Now, this word is actually remarkably close to the Greek word agios, which is the word for holy. And anytime the writers use two words that look almost exactly the same, there's a reason. They're playing on words. But this word oxios, it does mean unworthy, but it also means undeserving. But here's the point. Jesus is not saying that we are inherently unworthy as humans by our nature. He's talking about our unworthiness of his perfect and complete love when we choose to love something else more. When we accept his love partially and set it on a shelf for a time when maybe we really need it. He's simply saying that his love is worth so much more than that. You know, listen, I think this really matters. It matters theologically, it matters psychologically. It matters. The difference between these words, undeserving and unworthy, the difference matters. Because the Bible does not say that you are unworthy. It says that you're an image bearer of God Almighty. That's where the story starts. And we're going to talk about that more in the weeks to come. It says you're an image bearer of the God Almighty. You're just broken. Just like every other image bearer of God. And because of that, you can't buy or earn or deserve your way back into wholeness. Only the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus makes wholeness possible again. So we are undeserving. But we're not unworthy. We're undeserving. We're about to read a passage that might even suggest that not only are we helpless, but we might even be a little stupid. Um, and all the wives in the room will agree with that. <laughs> that was a joke. Okay. Um, okay. I think the gospel actually makes it clear. Uh, not only are you not unworthy, but you are worth so much to Jesus that you are worth dying for. So if you want to open your Bibles or just listen along, I'm going to read from John chapter 10. Let's listen to this and see what it has to say about Jesus and what that might suggest about our identity. This is almost right in the middle of the gospel of John. Jesus says this, he says, I tell you the truth, anyone who sneaks over the wall of a sheepfold rather than going through the gate must surely be a thief and a robber. But the one who enters through the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him. The sheep recognize his voice and come to him. Remember all these details. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. After he's gathered his own flock, he walks ahead of them and they follow him because they know his voice. They won't follow a stranger. They will run away from him because they don't know his voice. Really quick, to set this passage in its context, Jesus is talking to Pharisees religious leaders, and the reason for this conversation is a group of Pharisees were mad because Jesus just healed and restored a man who had been born blind. The nerve. <laughs> so they challenge him, and in return, he offers deep theology, and I'm not saying that sarcastically. He offers deep theology by talking about shepherd and sheep. 
And they don't understand what I just read. It says the Pharisees didn't understand what he was saying, so he goes and explains it to them from another perspective. But then in verse 11, he says this. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. A hired hand will run away when he sees the wolf coming. He'll abandon the sheep because they don't belong to him and he isn't their shepherd. And so the wolf attacks them and scatters the flock. The hired hand runs away because he's working only for the money and doesn't really care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep and they know me just as the father knows me and I know the father. So I sacrifice my life for the sheep. This too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, so we need to deal with this because the sheep metaphor is hard for us in the modern times. Um, To start with, it sounds a little harsh. There's one theologian that has even called this a divine insult. Okay, which I get, but can we just be really honest for a second? Like, I'm pretty sure, and many of you have seen this before, forgive me, but I'm pretty sure that when God looks at my life, this is what he sees. And listen, that's the one that a lot of you have seen. That's not the only one. Okay, buddy, good job, out into the field. No, no, no. Can anybody relate? (laughs) By the way, I think every pastor is required to use that clip at some point in their ministry. We don't get our full retirement unless we've used it, so. Okay, so the sheep metaphor, like, we get that, but but it still is a little problematic. Um, Especially because we are, I mean, we are enlightened and we're sophisticated people. But it's the image that Jesus has chosen to use as he offers deep theology to the Pharisees. So we need to wrestle with it. And I'm telling you, there is a sweetness to this imagery that we're gonna talk about in a minute. But Jesus isn't doing this to make a point primarily about the sheep. He does this to talk about the nature and character and work of the shepherd. There's a scholar named N.T. Wright. He talks about it like this. He helps to explain why it's hard for us to understand this image. He says, in the Bible, the picture of the shepherd with his sheep is frequently used to refer to the king and his people. But in the modern world, we don't think of rulers and leaders in that way. We think of people sitting behind big desks, dictating letters, chairing meetings, and they can often be quite removed from most of those who work in the organization. They seldom see their employees face to face. But in the Bible, the ideal king is pictured as a shepherd who became the king after God's own heart. And in a world where they knew about the intimate contact and trust between shepherd and sheep, This was their preferred way of talking about what it means to be the king. Do you understand the difference? This imagery is talking about what it means to be the king. It's not degrading sheep. So for us, this metaphor, it might not work when we're thinking about the workplace or when we're thinking about the people that we elect to represent us in the government. But when we put the image back in its context, we can see how meaningful and sweet it really is. This is the picture Jesus chose to use when he had the opportunity to not only claim kingship, but to explain what it means that he is the king of Israel, that he's the king of all kings. He's saying that his kingship, his leadership is so radically different from the leadership of those we elect. It's radically different from the way we lead companies and organizations. 
Jesus is saying that the true king, the good shepherd, he isn't in it for his own profit. He isn't in it for his own reward. He's in it for us. We may need to be more discerning. We probably shouldn't blindly follow other leaders who may be in it for themselves. But he is the king who's in it for us. And T. Wright continues, he says, this is the supreme test of what he's in it for is gonna come when he's faced with a choice. When a predator appears, you can tell the difference between a true shepherd and a false one by what they do. A false shepherd will save himself at the cost of his people. A true shepherd shows who he is by being prepared to lay down his life for them. And I think this is where the analogy broke down for the Pharisees. And if you can bear with me just for a second, up until then, all the talk about sheep and shepherds, that they knew the shepherd's voice, that they wouldn't follow a stranger, all of that apparently is true from stories of actual shepherds throughout history. Actual shepherds, especially from that part of the world, they will tell you, even today, that shepherds will name at least some of their sheep, usually based on some physical characteristic or something quirky about their personality, if they have one. It's one of the ways that they keep count of their sheep so they can make sure that they have them all at the end of the night. They will also tell you that sheep know the voice of their shepherd. A shepherd can walk into a field filled with multiple flocks of sheep. That's how it works in small villages. They'll all leave at the same time and the sheep from different folds will begin to intermingle and they get to the field and it's just a massive mob of sheep. And then each shepherd, one by one, will go off and make his familiar calls, his sounds. They will hear his voice. And one by one, from out of that mass of sheep, one by one, every one of them will go to only their shepherd and they will follow them. There's a modern day sheep from the Middle East who explained all this to a scholar named Kenneth Bailey. He says the first thing a shepherd has to do when a new sheep enters into the fold is to spend time with it, to talk to it to give it clear sounds and signals so that that sheep learns his voice and will recognize him. He says that if you don't do that and you go to the pen to call out the sheep, the sheep who hasn't learned your voice yet will literally, it'll have a nervous breakdown. It'll start to bang its head against the rocks or the fence. It'll have a complete meltdown because it doesn't know what to do. The sheep know their shepherd and the shepherd knows their sheep. They're responsible for their sheep. They guide and guard and protect them. They carry both a rod for fending off predators as well as a staff for guiding wayward sheep out of the ditches over and over and over again. Like we often think of these shepherds as like weak little boys or something. Y'all, these are fighters killing lions and bears to protect their sheep. If they weren't carrying a rod, then their shepherd's staff had a crook at one end to pull out of the ditch but at the other end, it was sharpened to a point for defense. They were strong. They would fight. They stood ready to fight and defend their flock. The Pharisees knew all this. They knew where the image came from. They knew it's from scripture. Five times in the Old Testament, this imagery is used. They knew what the shepherding life was like. That's the world that they lived in. But I'm telling you, the metaphor likely broke down for them, and I think it might break down for us when Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. So I sacrifice my life for the sheep. And if you think about it from their perspective for a minute, this actually makes zero sense practically. Because a shepherd will fight for and defend his sheep, but what good is it if the shepherd dies in the field and leaves his sheep lost and alone? alone? 
That's why we know it's not the end of the story. Eugene Peterson says it this way in the message. This is thin, again from John chapter 10, because I freely lay down my life and so I am free to take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own free will. Y'all, listen, the Jews didn't kill Jesus. You may have heard it said, it, it was your sin that nailed him to the cross. All right, our sin is the reason for the sacrifice, but what did he just say? Why did he go to the cross? Why did he die? He did it of his own free will. Nobody forced him and nobody did it to him. I lay it down of my own free will. I have the right to lay it down. I also have the right to take it up again. And I receive this authority personally from my father. The good shepherd's death is vindicated in his resurrection. And then the promise of resurrection and new life is extended out to his sheep whom he knows by name, whom he loves so much, his sheep who are worth dying for. And for his sheep, for us today. And this is the part that many of us miss. This is, this is the part where we're not fully receiving the gospel. Living in the promise of the resurrection is about more than just where we go after we die. Look at what it says in verse nine and 10. The good shepherd says this, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. And yes, that is radically, that is radically exclusive. It is. He is saying there is only one means for salvation and it's me. But he goes on to say, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and do what? And go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have what? And have it to the full. Because they are protected and safe. Because they are known. Because the shepherd counts every night to make sure they make their way back to the fold. The sheep are then free and empowered to come and go, to find pasture to not just stay in and be saved, but to live, to live the fullest kind of life. The gospel doesn't only designate where I go after this life, it does do that for sure, but that's not all it does. The gospel frees me to live this life now the way I might anticipate living it forever. But I'm telling you the reason this conversation is so important, the reason we're spending so much time on this idea of identity is because I'm convinced the only way that we can live the fullest kind of life is if we've accepted the truth about who we really are. And every day, everywhere you go, I don't care how young or old you are, there are voices everywhere trying to tell you who and what you are. So many voices that sometimes the voice of scripture itself gets drowned out. So for the past couple weeks, we've been saying there's just some simple truths. The first one is that we are known. We've been talking about that for the past couple weeks. That's at the heart of Psalm 139. We've read that Psalm every week for the past three weeks. Do you want to know who you are? Do you want to know who you really are? You are known. You are accepted and you are loved. And you are worth dying for. You are sought after. You are cared for so deeply that God sent his only son. 
that Jesus gave his own life so that you might fully live yours and so that the fullness of that life will have no end. Listen, I can tell you from experience, when I live believing the lie that I'm unworthy, not undeserving, but unworthy of the good shepherd's love, of his sacrifice, when I live believing that lie, my life is utter chaos. Psychologically, theologically, practically, I'm a mess. Because I'm believing something that sounds true. And from my perspective, it sounds at least partially true. But it's not ultimately true because whether I believe it or not, Jesus believed that I was worth dying for. Even in my sin. Not after I'm clean and recovered. In the midst of my mess, Romans 5 says this, for a while we were still helpless. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And then to verse eight, but God demonstrates his own love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why? Because we earned it? Because we deserve it? No, because he chose to. Because even though we think we are not worthy, he disagrees. Even though we are undeserving, we are not unworthy. The God of the universe, the King of Kings, the Good Shepherd, he believes that you are worth dying for. So don't believe partial truths. Don't believe the lies that will tell you otherwise. And I'm telling you, this has incredible implications, not only for the way we understand our own identity, but for the way that we see others. I already said this, do you want to know who you are, who you really are? You are known, you're sought after, you're cared for so deeply that God sent his only son that Jesus gave his own life so that you might more fully live yours. Do you know that that's true about you? If you do, do you understand that that's the same way that God loves your neighbors? That that same love is for the stranger? That that same love is for the person that you might even consider your enemy? This has great implications for what it means to be the church. Imagine how effective a church will be if its people believe these fundamental truths about themselves and then go out in the world not only believing those truths about everybody they interact with, but will take the time to tell them. In a world where so many people feel so helpless and unworthy, we have wildly good news. One thing I want to mention before I'm done, and this will be quick. Um, I got an email from Beth just yesterday morning. Um, I actually didn't know where all this was going to go. Um, she sent me an email yesterday morning that told me. <laughs> uh, something, it, it came from a meeting that she and her team had uh, with some of you last Tuesday night, parents and grandparents of some of our kids. Um, and she shared about a small book that she's making available to parents and grandparents of elementary and middle schoolers. Uh, the book is called The Building Blocks of Faith. It's by a couple, Bob and Laura Keeley. Uh, they're church educators and children's pastors out of Michigan. They're part of the Christian Reformed Church. And she shared just a quick summary with me of the four building blocks that they use in their book. And it's just perfect to conclude this today and to get us ready for what's next. Because for the past three weeks, we have talked about two simple truths that we are known and that we are worth dying for. And you've heard me say it over and over. If we internalize those truths if we begin to build our identity on that foundation, 
then we can begin to add these building blocks that can help us form a full identity in Christ, one that will fundamentally change the way we live now and forever. So the book teaches four simple things, teaches kids four simple things, right? This book teaches kids because this is only for kids. This book teaches us four simple things. The first one is that you belong, that you belong to Jesus and his church. Now remember, we do nothing to deserve or earn any of this. We are known, we are worth dying for, and we belong to Jesus and his church simply because of God's grace and because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So whoever walks in that door, I don't care how messed up, I don't care how inconsistent with some of the things that we may believe, whoever walks through that door, this is where they belong, surrounded by God's people. So you belong to Jesus and to his church. The second one is that you can know and understand the story of God's grace and faithfulness because it's a story that you're a part of. And that's what we mean here when we talk about biblical literacy. It's one of our four core values. Biblical literacy to us is not knowing everything there is to know about the Bible. Nobody, nobody knows that. Biblical literacy is about knowing and understanding the story of God's faithfulness and recognizing that you're a part of it. And then the next building block, the story has this incredible climactic conclusion that we can have hope because through Christ, all God's promises are coming true. That God is making all things new. And God is using us to accomplish that newness in his world. That's the fourth point, that we are called to work in God's kingdom and we are equipped to do that work. We are sent into the world after each of our gatherings. We end every worship service by doing what? by sending a blessing over one another. We are sent out into the world with this truth in our hearts. We're looking for ways that God might use our hands and feet, our mouths, our whole being, so that we can bring something new and beautiful into the world, even if it's just in the world of one person. Imagine how effective a church will be if its people will build their identity on the foundations that we are known and that we are worth dying for. And then on top of that foundation, begin to build a structure that reminds us the good news that we belong, that we can know and understand God's story, that we are a part of that story, that we can have hope because God's promises are coming true. He keeps his promises through Jesus and that we are called and equipped to live and move in this world in a way that brings hope and healing to others by simply leading them to the foot of the cross. Now, the story is incredible. I don't, I don't think we comprehend how incredible it is because I don't think that we think we're worthy of it. We don't earn this. We don't deserve it. It's simply a gift that's given. We're just asked to receive it. But it's your choice whether you receive it or not. Love can't be made complete unless it's received. So look, we can choose to take that gift and then put it on the shelf. Maybe never look at it again or maybe just have confidence that if I ever really need it, it's there. Christ's love is worth more than that, y'all. We have a choice to take this gift and set it aside or we can take this gift, we can open it up and we can go outside and play. <laughs> we can enjoy the great gift that our great God has given us. 
So we're just trying to understand what's true about us. The truth is that Jesus died for you because Jesus believes you are worth dying for. But I'm telling you, he didn't do it so that we would just continue to buy the lies that we are insignificant, that we're in the way, that we're a burden, or that we are unworthy. He laid down his life so that we may have life, that we may have and live that life to the fullest, now and forever. Amen? Let's pray. Grateful as always, God, for good news. But the truth is, this news is really familiar. It's something we hear. It's something I think we expect to hear in this place. And sometimes familiar things can become like white noise if we let it. So, Father, today we just pray that your spirit would soften our hearts and open us up, that we could receive a familiar thing in a new way. That we could really understand the ramifications of what this means, the truth of who you are and what you've done and what it says about us. So give us the strength and the courage to trust you, to listen for your voice, to be obedient when you call, and then to step back and look and celebrate all the amazing things you're doing and the fact that sometimes you choose to do those things through us. God, you are good. Jesus, you are good. Holy Spirit, you are powerful to do this work in us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen.